We're in 1 Peter chapter 2. And I am so glad to be back uh, today. Um, oh, wow, thank you. It's uh, really, really feeling much, much better. Um, not sure what I had. It's kind of crazy. Kind of a crazy sickness. Know of anything going around? So, um, Sprig fever, something, yeah. It was the weirdest one, a weird, probably the weirdest sickness I've ever had. So we'll leave it at that. But I am better now, and uh, so glad to be uh, be here with all of you this morning. So, um, uh, you know, a couple of summers ago, on uh, it was the summer of 2018, and we took a family trip, a three-week, I believe it was three weeks. How many days? 18 days? 18-day family trip. We drove completely out west. How many of you remember this? We drove from here through Omaha to Denver, Colorado. We went to Utah. We went to uh, national parks there. We went to Salt Lake City area. We went up to Idaho. We had an amazing trip. And uh, so some of you might know this story. On our trip, uh, especially to Idaho, we were just finding you know, places to stay and, you know, friends to visit. We visited with some of Janet's uh, friends that she had met in college. They were a host family um, during like a basketball tournament when Janet was doing cheerleading. Did you guys know that about Janet, by the way? <laughs> you didn't, have I not said this in uh, 10 years? I didn't even know that. Oh yeah. Yeah. She was, they would throw her up and, you know, eye level with the top of the bleachers throwing up that, that, that's not really the point of this story. It is now, yes. Well, I'll show pictures next week. Um, I need to regain more of my strength before I were to try this. Uh, but one of the places that we went to visit was, um, was my dad's best friend from high school. Uh, he, we knew he lived up uh, in a resort town, kind of in central Idaho, and we're like, well, let's just see. My mom told me about him. We reached out to him via Facebook, and he was so thrilled to host us, and um, so he got a big, humongous trailer for us to stay in and put it at the, the RV park for us to be at, and we, it was so good to see him, and I was look, really looking forward to seeing him. Um, and, uh, but as many of you know, my dad passed away when I was in high school and, um, he, uh, my dad, and this is, his name is Jerry. Uh, they were best friends from childhood all the way up. And I hadn't seen him in 20 something years. And so we had arranged, he was so excited. He actually wanted to meet us a day earlier in Boise. And so he drove down, we said, we're going to be meeting at this like large outdoor mall thing. And I remember seeing him from a distance because I knew what, his, what he looked like. And when he, when he came kind of around the corner and he kind of looked at me, you could see he just stopped and he just shook his head. And he came over and he hugged me and he had tears in his eyes. And he was like, you look so much like your dad. You look so much. I just, I knew right when I could see across the entire courtyard, I knew, I knew it was you. And you guys know this sentiment, right? It's like the... I don't believe he said these exact words. He said something to this effect, but like you're a chip off the old block. And, uh, and indeed, I, I do resemble my dad quite a bit. This morning, we're going to be talking about that concept, being a chip off of the old block. Christians are a chip off of the block, the living stone that is Jesus Christ. And so our passage today is, as on the screen there, 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. So if you follow along as I read this passage, and then we'll look at three pictures that Peter gives us here to help us understand a little bit of our identity in Christ. We're going to be looking at our identity in Christ both this week and next week, Lord willing. Um, but this week, we're just going to focus on verses 4 through, uh, 4 through 8. Next week, we're going to be looking at verses uh, 9 through 12. And then the week after that, we're going to be looking at what our responsibility is uh, to society and, in, and government. But today, we're going to be looking at um, verses 4 through 8. 
And so if you are there, follow along as I, as I read. As you come to him, and that is Christ, as you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. This is the reading of God's word. And we say, thanks be to God. So this morning, we're going to look at three pictures. And here's the first picture that I want you to to catch this morning. And that is Christ is the living stone. Christ is the living uh, stone. And you could follow along in your handouts there. Although I think I forgot to take the space out. So it's already filled out there for you. But there's plenty of other uh, things here you could add to your notes uh, as we go along. Christ as a stone. Now, um, this is a, a very interesting picture and an image of, of Jesus that we actually get from the Old Testament. And that's evidenced in a couple of ways. If you were following along and you could see in your notes, you might have noticed that there's a couple of quotations that Peter gives there. He quotes them from three Old Testament passages regarding this stone metaphor. Well, I'd like to, to look at another Old Testament passage that, that shows that Jesus is actually this stone metaphor that's used in the Old Testament. Uh, the first one is in Daniel chapter 2. So I invite you to turn there because it might be helpful to see this. Daniel chapter 2. Okay, of course, Daniel is part of the people of Israel that are in bondage uh, in, um, during the Babylonian exile. When God had appointed the, the kingdom of Babylon to come and conquer Jerusalem and uh, killed a lot of Jews, but took a lot of them back to, to Babylon. And Nebuchadnezzar is king and Daniel kind of ends up becoming a kind of a leader uh, in, uh, in his court. And let me summarize here for you in Daniel chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar has, has a dream and he is deeply troubled by the dream. So he he decides he's going to get the magicians and the enchanters and the sorcerers uh, together. And he wants them to interpret the dream. And they're like, oh, sure, this is how this works. Just tell us the dream routes and we'll tell you what it means. And he goes, not so fast, not so fast. As a matter of fact, I'm so deeply troubled by the stream. And I think he's really challenging them and questioning them on, on their interpretive ability. He says, no, this is how this is going to work. You're going to tell me what I dreamed. Then you're going to interpret it. And they're like, well, that's not really what we do. That's not how this works. You tell us the dream and then we'll tell you the interpretation. He says, no. And he sends them off and they get deeply troubled. And Daniel catches word of this, of what's going on. And so he and his buddies pray and he prays, Lord. You are the one who gives all knowledge and all wisdom. You give all understanding. I, I'm asking you, give me wisdom and knowledge and understanding. Give me the dream that Nebuchadnezzar dreamed and the meaning of it. And then I can interpret it for him. And so Daniel goes, long story short, Daniel is actually uh, brought to Nebuchadnezzar. And this is what he says, verse 31 of chapter 2. And this is a, a fantastic passage here. Daniel begins to interpret the dream, to, to tell him the dream and then to interpret the dream. 
He says this, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. The head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked at this image, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them in pieces. And the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken in pieces and become like the chaff of the summer threshing floors, meaning really light, almost like grounded to powder so that it could blow away. So that the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream. Now, let me tell you, king, what the interpretation is. He says, you, O king, you're the king of kings. You're the God of heaven has given you power and authority and might and glory. And in uh, whose hands he is given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. He says, you are that head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. So as the same way that silver is a little inferior to gold, you, Nebuchadnezzar, being the head of gold, there's going to be another kingdom that's going to be kind of inferior to you that's going to rise up and it's going to replace you. And yet a third kingdom of bronze in the same way that bronze is uh, inferior to silver, this kingdom will come. And it will rule over all of the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom, he says in verse 40. Strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all of these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw mixed uh, iron mixed with the soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with the soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And here's the, the culmination. And in the end of those days, in, in the end of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that stone, a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron and the bronze and the clay and the silver and the gold, a great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation sure. This is a very key moment in the latter half of the Old Testament. Because it's a vision about the future that happens from during the Babylonian exile of Israel in Babylon. All the way up until the coming of Jesus Christ. Those four kingdoms can be identified with uh, loosely, and there's some questions and some specific details here, but I think largely uh, historians would recognize what four kingdoms happened between the Babylonian exile and the coming of Jesus Christ. And those four kingdoms would be the Babylonian kingdom, and then the Medo-Persian kingdom, and then the kingdom of Greece with Alexander the Great, and then lastly, the Roman Empire. And that it was in the middle of that fourth kingdom, the, the Roman Empire, you have a prophecy from God that says, that's when the beginning of my kingdom that I will establish that will shatter all other earthly kingdoms, that's when it will be initiated. It will be in that kingdom. The early Christian church recognized this and understood this here and said, this stone this is just a stone. 
It's not just a rock. As a matter of fact, it's not cut by human hands at all. This is of a completely divine nature. And as a matter of fact, this is a metaphor for a person. They understood this as being messianic. That this stone is the Messiah. That this stone is the anointed one. That this stone was going to be the son of David who was going to reign on the throne forever and ever. And he tells you precisely when that will happen. It's going to happen in the midst of that fourth kingdom during the Roman Empire. And this is exactly when Christ comes. So this became kind of a mind-blowing thing for the early Christian church. They put together this idea of Jesus as the stone. And actually, this is even supplemented in part by Jesus himself. Turn to Matthew chapter 21. Jesus drops a few hints. Now, remember, Peter is one of the the author of this letter is uh, the chief of all of the other disciples, kind of the lead of all of the other disciples. And he is present with Jesus all throughout his ministry. He is here when he hears these words. And Jesus tells this parable of tenants. This is a very important one. And we will read this, uh, follow along here as I read this parable together. As I read this parable, you follow along. This is near the end of Jesus's earthly ministry. Not very much longer after this, he's going to be arrested and dragged into the courts he's going to be crucified on a cross and so this is kind of the culmination of his of his ministry here and his challenges to the religious leaders gets a little bit more more forceful at this time this is kind of a long introduction here but just bear with me i want to focus on this idea of christ as this stone So he tells the parable, verse 33, Matthew chapter 21. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. Then the season for fruit drew near. He sent his servants to the tenants to get its fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And they answer, They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Okay, stop here. You kind of catch the idea, hopefully, of this parable, right? This vineyard with these tenants of the vineyard represents Israel. As a matter of fact, Isaiah, uh, the Lord says in Isaiah that uh, Israel was this beautiful vineyard. And so Jesus is drawing on that idea here and he's saying this in this parable, this vineyard and its tenants are Israel and the leaders over Israel. And so the owner is God, the father himself. And as he's sending servants to come to that vineyard to say, collect my fruit, be fruitful. um, They end up rejecting all of the servants. And then he says, finally, I'll send my son. And the son here is Jesus himself. And they said, no, actually, we're going to kill him. And then we're going to try to steal his inheritance. This is a parable of judgment on Israel who rejects the one true Messiah that they were waiting for and looking for. And so he puts this question to them and they're perhaps not catching at this point What message he's saying here, you religious leaders, what would you do in this scenario? And they said, well, we put those, he's going to put those wretches to a miserable end. Not realizing that they're actually calling down judgment upon themselves because they are the tenants here. 
You, you catching what I'm saying here? Okay. And it's in this that Jesus says to them, because they've just issued their own indictment in answering his question about the parable. Jesus says to them, have you not read in the scriptures? And then he quotes from uh, this passage in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So he kind of switches here. He just told them this parable, and then he's saying, that stone has actually come, and you guys have rejected him. In the same way that the tenants rejected the owner's son whom he sent, you have rejected the stone. You were to be builders over Israel in the land that God had promised. You're the leaders. And when the stone finally comes, you cast it aside. Jesus is identifying himself with the stone here. And then Jesus adds to that. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Okay. Complex here. Do you, you, do you track in with what Jesus is getting at? Jesus is identifying himself with the stone imagery all throughout the Old Testament. The stone that's going to come and is going to shatter all of the other kingdoms and the stone that's going to grow into a big mountain. And that stone growing into a big mountain is going to be the kingdom of God that's going to last forever and ever. That's going to come in the midst of the Roman Empire, which it does, as Jesus is uttering these very words. And your response to him matters. Now, we're going to get to that here in a little bit more, a little bit later. It's interesting. At this point, notice what it says in verse 45. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard this parable, they perceived that he was talking about them. I like that. Your guys are quick. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. But this is the point. Jesus cites that passage from Psalm 118, and he says, I am that stone. As a matter of fact, I, and he continues on with what in verse 40, uh, verse 44, with that reference to this stone that's going to break into pieces and that anybody who falls on it will be broken. You can see the references there. If you have your footnotes uh, or cross references, you can see all of those are referencing Daniel chapter two. So Jesus Christ is that stone. And this is what Peter is saying here. As you've come to him, you've come to the living stone. So much is packed in just that little phrase that Peter is saying there. That Christ is that stone. He is the Messiah. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. His kingdom has now been established. And you guys, believers, you come to him. A couple of things about this stone that Peter adds. That this stone was rejected by men. That's going to be a theme a little bit later in this passage. As a matter of fact, it says in verse 7, quoting uh, that, again, that Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected, Jesus Christ, is rejected by humanity. Christ the living stone is rejected by humanity. But, Peter says, that stone is, in the sight of God, chosen and precious in the sight of God chosen and precious and that's language that Peter is using uh, directly from another passage that he's going to quote uh, in Isaiah chapter 28 so Christ is the living stone who is rejected by humanity but chosen and precious to God and Christians we take our identity from this living stone. Jesus himself was chosen by God. Peter, as we saw in the first verses of this passage, he calls them elect exiles. It's the similar, it's the similar term that he's using. That as Christ was chosen and precious to God, 
Christians, your identity in Christ is that you are chosen by God and precious to him. Similarly, as we're going to see, Jesus was rejected by men. And what Peter is uh, is getting at here is you're going to be rejected by men, too. That comes that comes with the territory of being his being his people. And Christ is the living stone also suggests that he is the foundation for for all of life, too. That's the first picture. Christ is the living stone. And there's the scripture references if you would like to look those up and, and study those. <clears throat> but here's second. Here's the second image. Believers are living stones. This is a truly uh, profound thing that Peter is saying here in these verses. As you come to him, the living stone, rejected by man in the sight of God, chosen and precious... And thereby implying you are going to be rejected by men and in the sight of God. But in the sight of God, you're chosen and precious. He says this, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. That's the second picture here is believers are living stones. Believers are chips off of the old block. You, your identity comes from who Jesus is. And that believers are not just living stones. They're stones that are actually being put together into what he says is a spiritual house. Now, how the, the word here for house could mean a couple of things. One, it could mean just like a regular dwelling. But when it's used of God and his dwelling, that's always all throughout the, the New Testament is a reference to the temple, the temple and the dwelling place of God. Now, this is a very important image all throughout the Bible. You've got when God brought Israel out of their bondage of slavery in Egypt, and he says, he makes a covenant with them and he says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. We'll, we'll talk about quite a bit more next week. But he says, now I'm going to dwell in your midst. So build me this house. Build a building. It's a tabernacle. And then eventually it becomes the temple. This becomes the meeting place with the one true and living God on earth. Peter here is saying something radical has happened that the Christians, all who would believe in Christ, are living stones from the living stone and are being built up into a temple. Christians gathered together is the dwelling place and meeting place for mankind with God. That's a big, think about that. That is a huge responsibility for Christian churches. Now, I think this applies to the church. Uh, the true church as a whole is a spiritual house for God. But I think it also applies to local churches. This is the dwelling place of God by his spirit on earth. Right here, right here. It's what Peter's saying. It's a very profound thing he is saying here. And that this is a spiritual house. This is, doesn't mean that it's totally immaterial like spirits. Uh, although it does have a little bit of that association. But more it's this is where the Holy Spirit himself dwells in our midst. And this is supplemented by what he says in what follows here. You are being built up. As a spiritual house. Why? Oh, which, by the way, the, the use of the verb there shows that this is still under construction. The Lord is adding living stones as the message about Christ goes out to other people. And their hearts are changed and they come and turn to Christ. They become living stones and they're no longer individual isolated Christians. They come together in order to build a building. You gather stones and you assemble them. And it's still being built. It's a, 
still under construction. It's supplemented by what he says here. Uh, This spiritual house has this temple imagery is evident by what he says and what follows. To be a holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So believers, Christians, we become this holy priesthood. We still offer sacrifices. We don't offer sacrifices for sins because Christ himself offered for all time the one sacrifice of sin by offering himself on a cross. But we do offer our sacrifices of praise, our sacrifices of prayer, and our sacrifice of fellowship with one another. This is what Paul's point is in in Romans chapter uh, 12. Many of you are probably very familiar with these verses. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Or your logical worship, or your rational service, or your acceptable, um, acceptable worship. Paul is getting to the very the same idea that Christians, when we serve God, when we gather together as the people of God, we offer our lives. We're not offering animal sacrifices. We are offering ourselves. So this image of the tabernacle and temple gets transferred to the church when it's gathered. Okay? Let me invite you to turn to one other passage here. Um, there's, there's three, as a matter of fact. Yeah, there's three passages. 1 Corinthians chapter 3 would be good one to look at. Hebrews chapter 3 would be one to look at. But let's just focus, uh, for time's sake, let's just focus on one. And that is Ephesians chapter 2. In Ephesians chapter 2, Paul Paul is saying essentially the same thing that that Peter is saying here. And I'll begin, uh, let me back up here to verse, um, verse 17. And he, this is God, came and preached peace to you who were far off. This is to, to Gentiles and peace to those who were near. For through him, that is through Jesus Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So Peter, or excuse me, Paul says here to the church that's in Ephesus, he says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on, so here's the building language, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. This is exactly what Peter is about to say in these following verses. Jesus Christ is the stone, and that stone that was rejected by the builders was chosen and precious to God, and it's the foundation cornerstone. It's the one that God has placed. It becomes the marker on which makes the entire structure square. He is the starting block of the foundation in the cornerstone. And then he continues here in in Ephesians, back to Ephesians now, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. This is what he's saying. You are Ephesian believers. This is what Paul is saying to you, Redeemer believers, that you are being built up on the cornerstone, which is Christ. And he makes you into a whole structure, joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, verse 22, you also are being built together, same words that Peter uses, into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. It's profound, profound image. Everything that the temple symbolized, the dwelling place of God 
among man where man could come to meet with the one true God applies to the church. Applies to the church. It applied first to Jesus himself and now by extension to all who are united to Jesus are now the temple. Okay? Now, just as a little bit of an aside, there, there's kind of a teaching that, that is going uh, around. It's been going around for maybe 150 years or so where, uh, where they're looking back to Old Testament promises of the, the reestablishment of the temple. You know, Old Testament promises that there's going to be a reestablishment for a temple. And some people think that that's still going to happen in the future. So they're looking for what's happening in the, the Holy Land. And they're looking at the news articles and they're trying to see when this temple is going to re be rebuilt. I, I get what they're trying to, to say and what they're looking forward to. Their heart is in the right place. They just, you missed it. All throughout the New Testament, the rebuilt temple is the church. It's us. We don't need to look for an actual physical structure being built in Jerusalem one day. We are the temple. Christ is the living stone. Believers are the living stones. You are being built together into a holy dwelling place. Well, when will sacrifices be offered? They're offered now when we gather together and we sing. They're offered now when we gather together and we pray. They're offered now when we exalt the one for all time sacrifice, Jesus Christ himself. Okay? Now, it's not to say that they're the, the people that I'm, I'm criticizing. I know it's a very popular, uh, popular view, but they're just missing it. I would suggest you look at those other passages, multiple places in the New Testament. It says that the temple, the dwelling place of God, where his spirit is going to be found on this earth, happens in the church. We don't need to look for another physical structure somewhere. Amen? Amen. Amen. Because if you do gravitate to that and you're always looking at the news articles for, for, for when that's going to happen, you're going to miss your role now. If you're looking for a rebuilt physical temple somewhere, you're going to miss your job, your identity. And this is what, this is what Peter is saying here. As you come to him, as you, as you are coming to Christ, the living stone who was rejected by man, and you will be too, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, and so are you. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. This is amazing. That's what we need to learn about our identity. Now, Peter elaborates a little bit on this and gives some scriptural verses for this in verses six and in seven. He says, for it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion, a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Now, what, what's interesting is the the. Just as a side note here, the, the Hebrew, it doesn't have in him. So if you were to go into the Old Testament uh, passage there, Psalm 119, and it says, it, it says, whoever believes will not be put to shame. But during the New Testament time, uh, they were quoting from the Greek translation of the Old Testament. This is kind of an important thing because the translators later who were translating from Hebrew to Greek, were doing a little bit of interpretive work. They had understood passages like Daniel chapter 2. And there was a teaching that was growing in Judaism that this stone in Isaiah 28, in, uh, in Psalm 118, and in Daniel chapter 2, that this stone was a person. And so the translators personified it so the translator said whoever believes in him in this person will not be put to shame that's the passage that peter quotes from 
meaning Christ. Whoever believes in Christ will not be put to shame. And so he says, then it's an honor for you. So in verse 7, so the honor is for you who believe. The honor is for you who believe. So let me give you kind of the little main line of reasoning here before we get to the third point. Christ is the living stone. Believers are living stones. The living stone was rejected by unbelievers. Living stones will be rejected by unbelievers. The living stone was chosen, however, by God and precious to him. The living stones, likewise, are chosen by God and precious to him. The living stone was ultimately honored by God at the end. Because that stone was the stone that was used by God. That's the end of verse 7. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, the foundational stone on which everything else is built. Likewise, the living stones will ultimately be honored by God at the end. So the honor is for you who believe. Friends, you need to see yourselves for what you are. A chip off of the old block. We might be rejected by men. Jesus was rejected by men. But Jesus was chosen and precious to God. So we need to resemble Christ in our sufferings like living stones. And then to recognize who it is that we are. When we assemble together, as we're being built up, we become the meeting place and the dwelling place of God on earth. Here's the last main point unbelievers are disobedient builders verses seven and eight and this is who it's contrasted with all throughout this passage for those who believe they are honored but for those who disbelieve it says the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and verse eight a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense Here's the third citation from an Old Testament passage. This is from Isaiah chapter 8. That stone became a stone on which you'd stumble on. It became a rock of offense or a scandal. Peter adds, they stumble. Why? Because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Because their hearts are absolutely set against Christ. And it's only by a miraculous work of the spirit that that actually can be turned around for anyone, right? The honor is for us to believe and we recognize that that honor is a gracious gift from God himself through Christ. So that's the picture. Christ, the living stone, believers, your living stones being built out to a holy priesthood. And so as we face the disobedient, those who disobey the words, who reject Christ and for, do so for numerous reasons. Why? Because maybe the stone is at cost too much. Or maybe that stone is doesn't fit within my plans. Or maybe that stone just isn't as appealing to me and I don't feel like he would be useful for my life. Any number of reasons that that the builders would reject that stone are reasons why people would reject Christ. But the honor is for us who believe. Friends, know who you are. You're a chip off the old block. Amen? Amen. Let's pray together before we sing one closing song in response. Let's pray. Our gracious heavenly father, we thank you. We thank you for your word that speaks to us. 
We thank you for the encouragement and the reminder, not only from Peter, but from the numerous other passages he cites and alludes to. We thank you that we, like Christ, are chosen and precious to you through our trust in him. God, may your word here that spells out very clearly for us what our identity is. May we understand this. May we recognize the, the seriousness and the importance for which, um, to which you have called us. The identity that we have as being your dwelling place on earth. That it's through us as we gather together and as your word is proclaimed and as sacrifices of praise are being offered to you, that we become the site in which men and women can go from rejecting your son to trusting in him. So God, we thank you for your word. And may your word transform us and change us into the image of your son, Jesus. We pray all of this in Christ's mighty name. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Would you stand for closing song?
Now, brothers and sisters, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God our Father and the fellowship in the Holy Spirit be with all of you as you go. And also with me.